Right, uh, good evening everybody. Um, welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue on Green Philosophy. <laughs> I'm Simon Lendening, I'm the Director of the Forum and uh, will be chairing tonight's discussion. I just want to begin by going right back to some of the earliest thinking for our culture, if I can say anything as general as that, um, from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, which has two justly famous lines about our worldly existence in relation to other living things and our earthly home. First one from Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then, just a couple of verses later, in 128, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, they're very famous lines, but of course, for some, the very idea of dominion over all the earth is part of the problem. No less problematic, the idea of a special distinction of the human, this made-in-God's-image idea, the theomorphism, sometimes called. But whether one sees in this kind of text the roots of the problem or the grounds of its overcoming, the situation today of a humanity spreading out over the globe living lives that are increasingly dependent on scarce natural resources, that life can seem worlds away from the sort of harmonious guardianship suggested in the Old Testament. As the French philosopher Jacques Derrida put it, quoting now, no one can deny that an alteration in the human relation to animals and the earth has been accelerating, intensifying, no longer knowing where it is going, for about two centuries, at an incalculable rate and level. And as the biblical framing of our earthly existence, in terms of our being made in God's image, makes clear, our current ways of living not only say something about our relation to the earth, but shows us something about ourselves. As the British philosopher David Wiggins notes, part, part of the unease that many feel about factory farming, intensive livestock rearing, the general spoliation of nature, and the extinction of innumerable animal species, is that it shows us, as in a kind of mirror, as becoming at certain points akin to a form of life that we might well want to think is profoundly alien from ourselves, akin, that is, to an animal with, as he puts it, no non-instrumental concerns, no interest in the world considered as lasting longer than the animal in question will need the world to last in order to sustain the animal's own life. So that thought of our living in such a way that seems not to have any interest in the, the, um, the world lasting longer than we ourselves last. Well, happily taking place on World Environment Day, today's dialogue 
brings together two philosophers who have in their own ways engaged intensely with the environmental impact of modern humanity. Rupert Reed, who's here first on my left, is reader in philosophy at the University of East Anglia. He's a former Green Councillor and now chairs the Greenhouse Think Tank. Roger Scruton, further to my left, one of Britain's most well-known philosophers, holds positions at St Andrews and Oxford, and he's also the author of a new book, Green Philosophy, in which he elaborates a new way forward for environmental politics. That book, incidentally, is on sale outside after the event, where Roger will also be signing copies, if you'd like. I'll remind you again at the end. Now, the blurb on the book suggests that Roger calls for a conservative political view against the political left. But having read the book myself, I found that almost completely inappropriate as a description of the book. It's not really what he calls for at all. He certainly argues against various top-down solutions, but he also identifies a significant movement on the left, one which he says puts the local before the global, civil society before the state, and private initiatives before legal edicts. And this civil form of left environmentalism, he says, opens the way to a new alliance of left and right. I mean, I think that's, given that Roger's always represented as, you know, this thinker of the right, the fact that his book, his new book on green philosophy, has throughout it this call for a new alliance between the, a certain right and a certain left in politics is, is extremely interesting. And it's really in part because of that that I think this book is such an important contribution to our political culture and our philosophical culture today and in a practical way, is what I want to put to the test tonight, to see how far we can reach across the rift in our culture in the cause of an interest which certainly affects us all. So we have uh, 50 minutes or so of dialogue and discussion between our two invited guests, and then follow that by about 30 minutes of uh, audience uh, opportunity for the audience to make contributions or ask questions of their own. But for now, and to begin with, please welcome Roger Scruton and Rupert Reed. Right, now, we've got a few things, that, a little battle plan of things that we want to get through. And um, the first is an opportunity really for them to introduce themselves in terms of their thinking about uh, the envir environmental politics. Roger's going to go first on this and, and then Rupert. And uh, what I'd like, Roger, if you could sort of attend to in your first um, contribution here is about the relationship between conservation and conservatism. Because obviously there is a, seems to be a very close tie between those ideas and for you a kind of natural connection. Yes, uh, I think this is obviously the the starting point of my argument that, that um, the, our attitude to the environment has obviously changed radically over the, over the centuries but the main concern of all of us today, the concern which unites us I think is that uh, we are using up finite resources and not replacing them. In other words we need to conserve those resources and find means 
uh, if possible, uh, substituting for them. Uh, and that, to me, is, of course, what conservatism has always been about. I mean, it's no accident that the word is the same, or etymologically the same. Uh, I've always thought of political conservatism in the way that Burke thinks of it, uh, as, if you like, um, the politics which is devoted to maintaining the social ecology, maintaining a, a given uh, social inheritance, obviously changing it and adapting it, but nevertheless working from the materials that one has uh, and conserving the good things within it. Um, and some people will say that's not what conservatism is now. Uh, obviously, there is the whole... Um, free market idea which has got wound into the conservative position but um, that has to be confronted but nevertheless for me ultimately from the philosophical point of view the, the concern of, cons of conservatism in politics and that of conservation in, in uh, environmental matters is the same uh, and uh, in particular I emphasize the transgenerational character of conservatism right. Uh, when people uh, um, criticise conservatives as being simply uh, advocates of the market economy uh, who put um, profit, efficiency and so on, all these economic values first, um, it's largely because uh, they think of that as destructive of, uh, of a particular inheritance and as, as it were an appropriation of the Earth's resources for the uses of the present uh, occupants. Can, can you just say a little bit more about this? Because I thought it was, it's also, as a matter of fact, although it comes from Burke, mm. it's not a view that would be confined to conservative thought at all. But it's a, a kind of view of the social contract? Or, yes, well, or, I think... Or an alternative it, to a it's kind a, of... Alternative. When Burke first put this forward, it was in response to Rousseau's social contract. Uh, and, uh, of course, to the French revolutionaries saying that, he, and his response was, indeed, yes, society is a contract, but it's a contract between the living, the unborn, and the dead, which means that the majority members of that contract are, are absent. Um, and how, do you, how uh, then do you look after them? And his response is, you, could, you look after them by maintaining the inheritance that the, that the dead have put aside for the benefit of the unborn. This is quite like David Wiggins saying that, you know, when we don't relate ourselves socially, intergenerationally, then we become like an animal that's no... Yes, no it, 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 I think that what uh, David Wiggins says in that passage you quoted is, of course, very... It is very much what I would identify as a conservative sentiment. But um, you have to separate all this from party politics for, that, uh, for right. it to be clear. I see. But, but you, if, if it's separable like that, why, what, what do you think that conservatism as a sort of political idea contributes to Okay, the, to uh, uh, th this is important. Uh, I was in, or originally um, animated to write this book by the sense that, um, that the environmental agenda had been, as it were, confiscated by, by the left uh -huh. and built into uh, uh, other programs, in particular pro uh, programs for social justice and all that, which involved massive um, interference from the state in the operations of civil society. So uh, I, I accept um, the, con the, the way in which conservatism has become identified with the free market, M not because I think that that's the, uh, that's the be-all and end-all of politics or economics, but because I, I recognize it as 
a way of maintaining the economic order from below and not from above. And, and I, I suppose um, in politics, I, I, my, my feel, feeling is that the conservative movement here and in America has maintained or tried to maintain the view that civil society is more important than the state, uh, whereas the socialist programs on the whole have given the state more authority and certainly more power than the civil institutions have been able to put against it. So that's in that way, I, I think it does have a, a kind of alignment with the party political process. Right, well, let, let's, let's pass this over then to Rupert because uh, the charge here is that environmental politics doesn't belong exclusively to, as it were, one side of a political culture, uh, but has been confiscated by the left, uh, says Roger, and the, the socialist programs particularly present this sort of uh, the authority of the state over civil society as the primary means of um, engaging with environmental politics. Now, you've been involved with green parties, which are, in a way, state parties. They're political parties. First of all, perhaps you could tell me, are, are they parties of the left? Well, it's a difficult question. My answer is something like no and yes, um, r rather than yes and no. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated to be here this evening, because I agree with you, Simon, that what's one of the things that's really encouraging about Roger's book is the way that he doesn't kind of stay in a sort of deliberate kind of uh, narrowly conservative ghetto but reaches mm. out at various points mm. to Greens, obviously, but also to some um, socialists. Mm. Um, now, I just want to pick up, before I come directly to your question, I just want to pick up on something that Roger said, which I think is terribly important, which is that we can't, unfortunately in my view, uh, directly relate the debate we're having this evening to the current state of British politics. The reason for that can be summed up quite simply, it seems to me, that the current Conservative Party has almost nothing to do with what Roger, I think, rightly calls conservatism. And somewhat similarly, the current Labour Party has almost nothing to do with socialism. They both, their ruling ideologies now are, in both cases, just different forms, one slightly more pro-status than the other, of neoliberalism. Um, now, I regard this, as I say, as a, a very bad uh, thing. Uh, I think it's very unfortunate. Uh, to my mind, the, the two greatest conservative philosophers living in Britain today are Roger and John Gray. And both of them, explicitly in John's uh, case, a little bit less explicitly in Roger's case, but both of them, if you, if you read their work, are incredibly critical of what passes for conservatism in the Conservative Party. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, Roger, in his book, mentions Zach Goldsmith, for example, who I think to some extent is a genuine conservative. One might mention someone like uh, Tim Yeo as well. It's very striking that both of those are on the very small green wing of the Conservative uh, Party, and I don't think that's um, a coincidence. So um, that's, I think, the first thing to say. I Can think we just have uh, one, one yeah. just for, this is for my sake, perhaps... Um, you said that the, the two major parties that are, as it were, representing the tradition of left and right uh, have got into something else, and you called it neoliberalism. Yeah. Well, could you just give a very sort of yeah. quick way of understanding what you mean by well, neoliberalism? So, so neoliberalism is basically a contemporary form of the political philosophy of liberalism, which is the dominant political philosophy of our time, which essentially says society is made out of, uh, of individuals, uh, and as, as Roger said, um, those of us who, who are influenced by Burke, uh, for example, crucially reject this. Um, let me just give you a very quick quote on this, which is a lovely quote from John Gray's book, Beyond the New Right. 
Conservatism is not like socialism or liberalism, a one-generation philosophy, but rather the opposite. And this point is a point where Roger and I are profoundly in agreement. For this reason, it is necessary to repudiate firmly the neoliberal metaphor of society as a contract in which market exchange is primordial. If society is a contract, Gray says, it is only in Edmund Burke's sense, a contract between the living, the dead, and those that are yet unborn. And of course, that kind of contract, and I think it's exactly what Burke meant when he talked about this, it's not really a contract at all. You can't literally contract with the dead and with the unborn. Mm. So this is, this is a way of kind of thinking radically beyond the, the social contract uh, metaphor. Neoliberalism takes the political philosophy of liberalism and says, we're going to do it, uh, we're going to do it on speed, we're going to do it squared, we're going to strip away uh, as many impediments as we can to the free operation uh, of, uh, of market forces. Um, so, um, to me, conservatism is a really important philosophy, and Roger is a really important representative of it, and it has, and this is part of the reason for my knowing, yes, it has some genuine connections, and I totally agree with Roger on this, and we'll talk about more of these, I'm sure, genuine connections with and foundations for green thinking, ecological um, um, thinking. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the philosophy that rules the contemporary conservative party. Um, in terms of then the question of where the Greens are positioned or the Green Party, well, the Green Party, like any party, is a coalition. Uh, uh-huh. And there are, there are quite a lot of people in the Green Party today who very much think of themselves as, as of the left. Uh, there are quite a lot of people in the Green Party who reject the left-right dichotomy altogether. And there are quite a lot of people in the Green Party, like myself, who to some extent reject the dichotomy altogether, to some extent take inspiration from the left, and to some extent take inspiration from the right, if right. by the right we mean um, Roger's version, not the version that is dominant in the current cons- Conservative Party. Right. Uh, I'll come back to this. I just want to push on the, the Burke theme a bit further, mm-hmm. this, this intergenerational thing. One of the things that you say when you're discussing Burke's idea is that the ones who are dead aren't entirely gone. That they're sort of... Mm. When we say we... Mm. we mean them too and in fact the future mm. ones there's a certain kind it's not like intergenerational in those absent ones those absent ones we present ones mm. because there's some sort of haunting yeah now this is a, a, another subtext of my argument that, that I, I want to put across the view that all politics depends upon a pre-political order a first-person plural that people can identify with, and that is a plural that reaches across de- um, generations. And it's my my reason for thinking that we can't define these political issues outside the context provided by the nation-state, right. because that gives us the sense of who we we are. Of course, uh, that we is constantly evolving and developing, but nevertheless. It is attached to a particular place and a particular legal tradition and so on. Uh, what, I, what I think is most important in Burke's thought is that uh, absent generations who are, as I say, the majority, cannot be provided for just by us deciding what we want. There must be some, some institutions, forms of life, patterns of association which, as it were, incorporate their interests already. Uh, and, um, and we have those institutions in things like schools and, uh, and churches and clubs, uh, and in particular in the 
common law of our country. And do we have them in political parties? Well, um, do we have them in the Green parties? Yeah. Is that is that in a way we part have them in of political the political parties to some extent? I would say more we have them in political traditions. This is, for example, the kind of thing that uh, Lord Maurice Glassman talks about, uh, and I think he's quite right to talk about. This is why he coined this uh, oxymoronic uh, phrase, seemingly of blue labour. Right? Partly, what he means by that is we have to think of uh, of labour. Uh, as tradition grounded in socialism and resistance to uh, commodification, and we have to think of it as having a conservative aspect, as anything which has a tradition uh, does. So it's not always just the shock of the new in the way that so many contemporary socialists, unfortunately, uh, uh, think of their think of their creed. So yes, to some extent in political parties, but uh, I wish it was more so, perhaps. And, and, and the development of green parties, where, where did it begin? Well, I'll say that's a massive question. One interesting little factoid about the, about the British Green Party, uh, which was, uh, by most people's reckoning, the first of a lot, exactly 40 years ago um, this year, um, is that uh, it certainly did not begin as a movement that self-identified uh, as, a, as a sectarian uh, left-wing movement, not at all. Uh, and the founders of the Green Party very much presented themselves as being uh, neither left nor right, uh, and that way, I think they, they, they laid some of the foundation stones for the ideology of, of being green, if there is one, as I understand it. Um, and here, of course, I disagree a little with, with Roger. Uh, the ideology that Andy Dobson has called ecologism. The idea that you must fundamentally base all of your thinking um, in our nature uh, as socially and uh, naturally um, ecological creatures. And everything else uh, flows from that. So you're, 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 yeah, in the moment, but yeah. just, you, you, you don't want to yourself, though, say it's, it's something other than left or right. It's that it, it rather belongs to more than one tradition. It's a tradition, as it were, of more than one tradition. Well, so as I said a few minutes ago, I, I'm, I'm kind of inclined to say both of those things, yeah, really. Right. It's kind of, in a way, it's neither left nor right. In another mm. way, uh, it draws upon left and draws upon uh, right and draws upon something which hasn't been well represented in either, although it is present to some extent, crucially in the thought of, uh, of Roger and of John Gray, right. i.e. in the thought of what conservatism ought to be. There, actually, I would like to um, add something here. Although it's true that the Green parties have existed for, for perhaps 40 years, and um, that is uh, quite a recent development in comparison with the uh, civil associations that I talk about. I, I want to say that the real conservatism is not about parties and it's not about, um, about the, uh, the storm clouds in the political sky, as Marx says. It, it is about what ordinary people do, how they get together uh, and, and solve their problems. Uh, and I take some examples, but the, the very obvious examples that that we have in, in British politics go back to the 17th century, the, re, you know, the revolt against the destruction of the forests uh, um, led by people like John Evelyn, the romantic movement in painting and poetry, uh, uh, and John Ruskin, made, who made his environmental commitment fundamental to his thinking about everything, and in particular did this wonderful thing of, of tying uh, the... Uh, <clears throat> love of nature and the desire to conserve nature to our love of the town and desire to conserve the town. But, but you've got to, you've, at some point you've got to 
segue between that kind of association and, sure. and the state. But, but, uh, and there's uh, a political party for you? You were merely chairing this. Uh, <laughs> um, <coughs> if you take, the, take up the issue of Ruskin, Ruskin founded lots of little civil associations, but his, uh, his um, friend and disciple, um, Olivia, what's her, her name slipped my mind, you know, uh, who sounded the um, National Trust. She founded that in 1890. You know, that's uh, over 120 years ago. And um, it now has four million members. And it has done a, a lot more to protect the environment in this country than any uh, government has ever done. It's taken emergency action, in fact, against governments to protect uh, tracts of countryside and, and the coastline, etc., from development. And I think that this is... a an illustration of the fact that uh, the, the bottom-up process in our country has been much more effective and beneficial than the top-down one. And Go ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess one of the points where, where Roger and I disagree is uh, I, I totally agree on the importance of the, the little platoons, um, but I think Roger rather overdoes how much they can do by themselves. Uh, I think Roger's uh, a bit too uh, keen on them and a bit too keen actually on the market, and we should come to that, and a bit not quite keen enough on the state and on NGOs and on political parties. Mm. So I would say, for example, that political parties have a crucial role to play here, as I said a little earlier, especially insofar as they have a, a tradition, uh, and they try to stay in touch with the kind of philosophies and ideologies that we're, we're talking about this evening. And I think Morris Glassman is a great example of that uh, idea in Labour. I think we're rather lacking that idea right now in, inside, if you like, the Conservative uh, uh, Party. Um, in terms of the NGOs, Roger is very hard, I think, in this book on NGOs like Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, etc., who, as the National Trust have done, although in a different way, have done extraordinary things and great things uh, in the relatively recent past, it seems to me, mm. for well, our environment. And I think that Roger is too hard on the state and that you say, Roger, that the National Trust has done more um, for, um, uh, for this country's environment than the state has ever done. Well, I think we, we could scrutinise that, that claim quite carefully. And there are various things that the state has done, many of them influenced by, in the recent times by the European Union, which, again, you're very hard on. Um, which I think are, have been extremely good for environment. For example, the way that, uh, that our air has been cleaned up, the way our, our waterways and beaches have been uh, cleaned up, and one could go on with a much longer list. Um, and I, I think that you're, you're sometimes too sceptical of the absolutely vital role I think the state has yes. to play here. Uh, um, the, the, well, it doesn't does it badly, but it yeah, do, sure. we should uh, make sure it um, does it well. But let me just... Um, uh, of course, I, I, I'm, I'm not... Um, necessarily fair in what I argue because uh, I'm trying to put a case for something that's been neglected. But uh, just, uh, just to take some of these examples, the waterways in our country were, were really protected by the Anglers Conservation Association I, and I uh, give you this case in detail in there. Yeah. It's them getting together using the law of trusts uh, and our habit of association uh, to protect the rivers that actually stopped the pollution by the state industries in, in the immediate post-war period. And I think this is actually quite an important example that against the state, it's very hard to invoke the state. So if this, it's the state that's polluting, you have problems. And this is why, yeah. uh, as we know from the Soviet case, total state control is a, means mm. environmental devastation. It's a good example, but um, I, it doesn't really bring us up to the present. 
And what's happened in the sure. last 30 years, crucially, for example, is that you've had, coming down from the EU, which you've got all these negative things to say about in the book, the Rivers mm-hmm. Directive, which has played an absolutely crucial role in further cleaning up our waterways. Yes. In, the, in the early 1970s, Britain was well known as the dirty man of Europe. Mm. Uh, it's, it's to a very considerable extent because of, uh, of EU uh, environmental legislation that that's no longer the case, and I think that that should be given proper credit. Yes, and uh, um, credit where credit is due. But, um, you know, uh, there are, well, we can't can't go into all the details here, but uh, we also have to think, remember, the EU is the progenitor of the um, common agricultural policy, which has been devastating for the small farmer and destroyed uh, masses of uh, habitat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the problem with all those top-down directives is that they are non-negotiable and irreversible when the the situation... but I would say that sometimes that's a good thing. It depends it, on the content of the direction. It might be, but, uh, but I In think the case of the rivers and the air, it looks like it's been a good thing. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, you may be right. Um, but as I, I say, the rivers were cleaned. The, the, the first moves were taken by yeah, that's uh, from below. Yeah. But, the, but the much more important to me is the, uh, and it's one of the themes of this book, is the kind of practical reasoning that's available to us ordinary people like us in this room when we confront these problems Uh, and um, one of the marks of a rational being is that when he takes a decision in conjunction with his fellows um, that if if there are consequences of that decision that she hadn't foretold uh, and which prove to, to make the matter worse then he sits down with his fellows and reverses it well, you know, sees what can be done. Uh, and with, this is rarely done in the political process because the whole thing is, is so cumbersome, especially in the European process, that a directive, once it's in place, is almost impossible to remove. And I think this is actually interferes in the end, as I see it philosophically, the question about the environment is a question about practical reasoning uh, and the way in which uh, we can collectively reason towards solutions which uh, satisfy as much as possible of what we want. Well, we'll get to solutions. I mean, I want to mm. get some of the nice sharpness of difference in view here mm. before we go on to alliance. So um, one of the cases, you, one of the examples you brought up, not the EU, were, were NGOs or, or groups like Greenpeace. Mm. Now, you, you, as it were, brought them into view as analogous to civil associations. Yeah. And... and uh, Perhaps then you should say a little bit about why you think they do do such good work so that then we can perhaps see another mm. sharper difference between you and Roger. Yeah, well, uh, I'm, I, I'm by no means in favour of you know, every single thing that Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, for example, have ever done, but I do think that on balance they are forces for good. Uh, and I think that there are some clear similarities between them and groups like the National Trust or the Transition Towns Movement, both of which uh, Roger rightly, in my view, uh, also praises. The thing which is somewhat different, although it's not a, a complete difference, it's only a difference of, of degree, is that um, Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth tend to uh, get more involved in the political process as such, well, obviously not as parties. Um, in the case of Greenpeace also, um, they do um, direct action, uh, which again I think is, is something um, splendid. Uh, if done um, in the right spirit and not something which in the least uh, we should, uh, we should uh, look down um, our noses at. And also international. That's right. And, and, of course, this connects up with the question of the environment. Why is it the case 
that, um, that the most important area for good work that the EU has done, uh, that the two most important areas for this are in terms of um, largely preventing wars in Europe and in terms of the environmental area. And the answer is obvious because um, um, international peace uh, and the environment are problems which do not uh, respect national frontiers. Um, so I think that the, it's absolutely clear that the EU has had a positive net effect um, on the environment and a positive net effect on, uh, on peace uh, in this part of the world. Um, and um, I think that we need to be open, more open than Roger tends to be, towards moving beyond uh, the boundaries of the state, where we confront problems that don't stop at the boundaries of the state. Excellent. Okay, so Roger, that is a big question on you. Why, why, why think that we should think so nationally when the problems are so transparently beyond the nation? Well, um, the, the major problems... I, mean, I think I slightly disagree with what, what just been said about the European Union, but the major problems uh, are all reducible, I think, to a, to a single problem, which is the, the, the absence of any motive in people um, to, uh, to uh, as it were, internalise the costs of their own behaviour. Uh, uh, um, whenever we can, we externalise them. Uh, Could you say a little bit more about that? That's actually a very central argument yeah. in your book about the, the, if we're going to get anything done here, people's mm. own motivations have to be yeah. involved. Uh, how, how do they get dislocated well, and, because, and externalised? Um, if you don't think uh, that your neighbour is uh, of any particular concern to you, and then, of course, you, you can dump your waste on his land, and, uh, and that's that. Uh, and um, it's, there are, if you don't think of a, a, particular, a particular territory or a particular waterway or a particular piece, um, section of the, of the globe is of, a, of any significance to you, then, of course, you, are, you don't have the motive to, uh, to look after it. And um, this is what we see in the, all the major environmental problems, and, and in particular those that don't get discussed as much as they should be, such as the problem of plastic pollution uh, uh, and the, the general problems of sinks and wastes uh, and so on. Uh, and my view is that people do nevertheless have a motive not to do these things, not to externalise their costs. Uh, and that motive, which I call oikophilia, is the love, of, the love of home, the love of the shared place, the place that you shared with those who came before you and those who are coming after you, with the, your, uh, uh, which is also the locus of your attachments and your loves and so on. Uh, that is something that we have as long as we feel settled in a place. Uh, and we can invoke that to solve these problems. And the problem of plastic pollution, to, in my view, is soluble. Um, it can't be solved while we have the European Union's rules about food packaging to, uh, you know, uh, and health and safety and all that. It would require... But it could have been solved locally if we didn't have those rules. And there are places in America where I think people are moving in that direction. So my view is you start with these local solutions because there you have a motive um, to abide by them. Uh, you can, of course, uh, start trying to introduce legislation which will have this advantage that it cro can cross boundaries like the EU re uh, um, regulations and so on but it will have the disadvantages, as, as I pointed out before, that it's non-negotiable in the face of 
unintended consequences. And those unintended consequences, like the consequences of the European Union's food packaging regulations, are worse for the environment than, than uh, anything that might have been done locally. So maybe the local has been neglected, but does this really counter Rupert's point that no, a certain uh, international level is also required? I'm totally in favour of international agreements if they can be maintained and enforced. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sceptical about the possibility of doing this when it comes to major players like China, uh, which are not well known for obeying their own laws, let alone laws that have been imposed from outside. You know? uh, so I think that one has to be realistic about the, uh, um, the, uh, the huge lacuna in, in all international legislation, namely that it's unenforceable in, in, in a crisis, and we are in a crisis. Do you have a different view on this? Um, well, I think that Roger delivers a salutary warning about the difficulty of international agreements. I think he's a bit hard in the book on uh, what's already been achieved. For example, I think we should celebrate the Montreal uh, Protocol mm. on, on uh, ozone depletion as an extraordinary success. It's kind of easy now to look back on it and say, oh, well, it wasn't that difficult to achieve and so on. But before it was brought in, there was vast scepticism about whether it was possible mm. to bring it in. I, I do and it say... Was brought in. I do celebrate it. Uh, you, you celebrate it but then, yeah. you, but then you say, um, but it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, it doesn't have consequences for our optimism or yeah. otherwise about further agreements. And of course I agree, and perhaps we'll come on to this in a little while in more detail, that the challenge of an international agreement on dangerous climate change is a lot more a lot, is a lot higher uh, a bar. Mm. As a Green, I'm in favour of taking absolutely seriously the principle of subsidiarity, which allegedly is the principle the EU operates by. Unfortunately, it doesn't in mm. practice. I, the idea of subsidiarity is reduce decisions to the lowest possible level at which they can be made. We ought to do that, and that would mean that there would be a lot more decisions made locally, but some decisions, nevertheless, would need to be made, made at the European level or, indeed, at the, at the global level. The, the, of course, one of the fundamental things that, that is um, true of the problem of dangerous climate change is that because of the way the atmosphere moves around all the time, mm -hmm. um, you really can't localise uh, that problem in the way that you can, to some extent at least, many other um, um, environmental problems. In terms of Roger's fundamental idea of oicophilia, uh, I'm totally in favour of it. I think, however, that I would like to argue we'll have for... To spell a, it out a bit in a minute. But well, the love, mm. of, the love of home is, uh, is, is the basic idea, as Roger's always already said. Uh, what, what I th think there, again, going along with this, with this thought that Roger, while I totally agree with him in terms of the priority of the local, I'm sceptical as to, as to his scepticism as to transnational and global... Um, I think we ought to try to extend our sense of oikophilia actively uh, to encompass, if you like, a larger and larger terrain. Mm. And I think that the, the dawn of truly global uh, environmental problems such as ozone depletion, um, uh, dangerous climate change and others, and also the fact that we have those incredible images of, uh, of the Earth from space, yes. which herald the possibility of, of, a, of a change of... of the way one person puts this is our world is becoming more and more Copernican. You know, we're more mm. and more aware of ourselves, more yeah. and more so. And that this is a global condition. It's not a, mm. it's not a purely national, oh, of domestic... Course, of course, but... Um, it's so the uh, oikos ought to, be the, ought to be the planet, ultimately, would be sure. Well... I think you have to be careful. It's, uh, the old adage that charity begins at home shouldn't end there. But if you spread things too thin, 
it never begins. This, yeah. uh, this, uh, I, I, I refer in the, when I, in trying to get to grips with this. I refer to the work of um, the psychoanalyst John Bowlby mm. on attachment, which I think uh, it, it ought to be much better known than it is. And I think it did change people's, many people's sense of exactly what is fundamental to the human condition. If you, if you become attached properly in infancy, and you can work on that attachment and gradually become a responsible adult taking care of things around you. But if it never occurs, that attachment, then the, the responsible government of your own little patch will never occur either. You and distinguish in the book actually between a cosmopolitan outlook, which could yeah. be global, and an international yes. outlook, which is global. How, how, do you tr how do you map that out? I, 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 I want to distinguish people who are settled and attached to a place, but nevertheless extend their sympathies to other places, from people who have no sympathies strong enough to be attached to anything. That's the cosmopolitan. Which is, no, the cosmopolitan is the one... Who oh, oh the, sorry, that's the internationalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, the other way around. But, uh, yeah, they're only words. <laughs> yeah, but they um, were your words. Yeah. So I thought we'd better get them in yeah. the right order. Yeah. <coughs> right. But I think that, that this is a, a, a major... Uh, just to say a little bit about oikophilia, I, I, I think that once you start thinking of this motive, and it's what really Burke is thinking about throughout that great book on the French Revolution... It isn't just about being attached to a particular place um, and the particular people in it and the people who've passed through it and so on. It, it manifests itself in particular in, in aesthetic values, our, ability, our desire to arrange things, to make things around us reflect our own self-image and our own sense of belonging. Uh, and if you, if you uh, destroy that, you're doing a great da damage to the environment. This is my principal objection to the wind farms. You know, they, they, do, they, they may or may not have some tiny little benefit attached to them, but they certainly have a major environmental cost in, in assaulting people's sense of, the, uh, of belonging to that particular piece of territory. And, and I, my, I, I take the view that, that since we do need to belong, it's much better for the environment if we belong to territory than to, say, a, a religion or a tribe or a, or a sect, you know. Uh, uh, territory that then has a, some active motive to, uh, to be protected. In terms of the wind farms thing, um, I think the book is already a little bit out of date on that. The, the, uh, in Denmark mm. and in Spain and in this country, uh, wind power has been taking leaps and strides in just the last two or three years. Now, I do agree with you. That, well, what I think is that, is that in terms of the aesthetics point is really, really important. I think it does depend on the place and depend on the people, though. There, there are a lot of people, and I'm one of them, who find uh, the contemporary uh, wind turbines, if they're in the, the correct position, um, aesthetically uh, pleasing and impressive. Mm. Um, uh, I think, for example, of, the, of, the, of the, some of the great uh, landscapes of where I live in East Anglia, both onshore and offshore, and I think it's actually not at all difficult to find places there to, to place uh, arrays of wind turbines such that they look great, mm. basically, and they add to one sense of the landscape. Well, I think there are more problems in yeah. quite a lot of um, upland areas where I think that uh, the, the, wind, uh, the wind turbines tend to be a lot more uh, intrusive and also um, in terms of requiring more road building, often more environmentally damaging. The, the crucial point that I think Roger is right about is that it is completely inadequate as some sort of 
green Prometheans do, if that isn't a contradiction in terms, which I think it is. Um, it's completely inadequate to just say, well, we simply need to produce the same amount of renewable energy that we have now, the same amount of energy that we have now through renewable uh, means. That's a complete kind of failure of imagination. We have to, to, to whatever renewable energy we bring in, we have to do so in a way that, uh, that um, respects the environment and respects our felt sense of the environment. Uh, and in particular, of course, we should be putting the main priorities on reducing the need for, uh, for, uh, for, for burning mm. of, uh, of energy and on reducing waste uh, as well, which hopefully is something that everybody can agree with once they, once they stop to, to think about it. So I think there's, there's room for um, potential uh, negotiation uh, and agreement here. Once again, though, it is terribly important that we don't get too fixated, as I think Roger sometimes is, on the local at the expense of the international or the global. So to come back to transition towns, for example, um, I'm a big fan of transition towns. I think it's absolutely clear. I'm involved in a transition town movement in Norwich. I think it's quite clear that transition towns can have all sorts of positive effects, including the, the effect, as you mentioned in the book, Roger, of, uh, of a good example, setting a good example, mm. uh, and of sort of producing sort of demonstration projects and so on and so forth. But we need to bear in mind the following crucial point. Insofar as we are in a, a, a globalized world market, and as a Green, I want to deglobalize that world market to a large extent. Um, uh, and it would be interesting to know your, your take on that. Insofar as we are in a globalized world market, the problem with putting all one's emphasis, uh, all one's eggs in the basket of transition towns, etc., is that what happens if you have, even if you have loads of transition towns, right, and so, so they have the crucial effect, for example, if, they, if that happens, of reducing demand for oil, reducing the amount of oil that's burned. In a globalized market, uh, where you don't have the kind of protectionist devices that I think we clearly need, the signal that sends to the rest of the world, the unreconstructed world, is oil just got cheaper, you know, burn, baby, burn. Unless we have genuinely effective constraints at the state and at the international level, um, then the good effects of a movement like the Transition Town uh, movement can be quickly cancelled by the price signals it, it sends and the bad effects that can have on, uh, on an unfettered market. And that, of course, ties in with the way in which I'm concerned that both yourself and John Gray are, at the end of the day, uh, too kind to the market. Well, um, that's what to say in response to that? I think that about the market, just this small point, I, I'm a defender of the market as a paradigm of um, collective reasoning. Uh, or that's to say, a paradigm of a... It's a system which uh, amalgamates the individual choices of people into a shared solution which they can live with. You know, uh, and I think the arguments for this have been given by Hayek and others in a very persuasive way. But, of course, it's not the whole truth about the human condition. It, it's just it's one example of how people solve problems. They solve the problem of creation and distribution of goods by free exchange. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's the only known solution to that problem. All, uh, all attempts to find another solution just end up with shortages and queues and so on. It doesn't follow from this that we have to have a, 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 a global market without any inhibitions or any barriers and so on. 
and I'm, I think I'm probably as protectionist as you are about okay, that. Um, but um, it does mean that we, we should respect that process, the process that produces solutions uh, from our uh, collective uh, uh, free exchanges. And I, I, I think of the common law as another such uh, process, mm -hmm. a process whereby people uh, work out how to compensate each other for injury, how to um, uh, derive acceptable solutions to yeah. shared problems from their own uh, interactions. Uh, See, I agree with you about the common law, and I agree with you about the planning system, which we talk about mm. in this book, and, and it's a great shame that the planning system is currently being uh, torn up uh, in, the, in the pursuit of economic growth by our current uh, uh, government. Um, but I'm, I, it's in relation to, uh, to, to the market that, that I, I detect a kind of lacuna in your thinking and in that mm. of, of, of John, because it's interesting that you mention Hayek. It seems to me that... that, that at a certain point, as it were, you need to decide whether or not you come down on the side of Hayek or against Hayek. Because I see Hayek as fundamentally the, the doyen of, uh, of libertarianism. Yeah. And of libertarianism as allied with liberalism and with neoliberalism against uh, the, 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 the true core of conservatism, of green thinking, and of the best uh, socialist thinking. Um, in, that, uh, in, that, in that Hayek is fanatically uh, individualistic, uh, and he thinks that you need to have a plan. His plan is to get rid of all state planning, but it's still a plan, as, yeah. as Polanyi and Oakeshott famously observed. Yeah. It's not a genuinely conservative principle, and that, of course, is why he ends this book, The Constitution of Liberty, with his essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative. Yes. Oh, well, so, hang on, you so, didn't let me finish, okay, because uh, um, I have actually agreed with most of what you just said. Okay. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, it, that book, I agree, uh, um, is not the kind of the part of Hayek that I would accept. Uh, his defense of the common law, however, has a very conservative side to it. Uh, he he, he uh, recognizes that uh, markets only exist under constraints, and in particular, these constraints are the, those which emerge naturally between people as, when they uh, are, exist together in society, inc including moral constraints, and in my view, aesthetic constraints. I was just on the uh, train today, I picked up a newspaper that had been put on the train in Wales, in which a um, whole centre page of this sort of a local newspaper uh, was devoted to the demonstrations against wind farms by a whole community in Wales, a whole valley of villages saying, we can't, we, we, we're not going to have these, uh, uh, you know. And I thought, yes, that's, uh, that's the side I am on. Uh, and um, that I see as continuous with the with those aspects of the human condition that make it possible to have a, an environmental policy in the first place. And that's why I, I put oikophilia first. I would, of course it is true that because of um, the globalized economy, uh, uh, all sorts of problems spill over into, across boundaries and um, we can't stop that happening just like that. Uh, we have to find solutions but, uh, and I've, I'm not very good at these solutions, and no, no more than you are. Um, let's face we'll it. We'll see about that. Uh, um, you know, that no, nobody really knows, but the, uh, I, I would still make the, the fundamental point that if, you, if your solutions actually destroy the motive that people have for going along with them, they are not solutions. Mm -hmm. So you've got to start off by protecting that thing on which we will always have to draw 
which is the oikophilia of ordinary people, if anything is going to be successful at all. Then you build up from there, uh, and of course um, you, you're right that there are successful examples of international agreements which have uh, protected things. There are lots of international agreements. I take the European Common Fisheries Policy as an example. But it's just been reformed. It's, it's just, just been reformed right in a really good way. Yeah, that's great. Uh, let's see. <laughs> uh, I mean, they, they always say that. Um, uh, but, but I contrast it with the Norwegian uh, policy of, uh, of maintaining in being the hundred-year-old uh, um, trust agreements between fishermen on the coast. Uh, and, of course, that is why the only cod you can get in there uh, supermarkets is, comes from Norway, which is outside the European <laughs> Union. But that does, yeah, that's, uh, these are difficult cases, and uh, it's not that I'm trying to defend the local as the, ab- the, the only possible solution and the, and the single source of solutions. Uh, I, I'm saying that, uh, that we have to get that right in order to have something on which to draw when we sit at our tables with all these... Uh, um, grey creatures from other parts of the planet who don't necessarily have our interests at, at heart. If yeah. we could uh, just pass on then to what you called the highest bar with <coughs> climate change issues. Mm. I don't know uh, if we want to go in very far into climate change scepticism or whether for you that's a finished argument. Let's we'll start with you, Roger. Well, I, I do devote a chapter to it in the book, partly to to point out that, um, you know, that, that this is a huge problem that ignorant people like me uh, um, don't have a, an answer to. We are dependent upon experts. Uh, and, of course, everything about it is controversial. Uh, and it's not just that some people have cheated on results and all that sort of stuff. That, that, that to me, is less significant than the fact that, uh, that it's an issue about which there is no consensus concerning the models that we need in order to predict things. Um, so we don't really know. Uh, but I would say it's common sense that if you pour into the environment, into the air, carbon dioxide, knowing that, 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 that it is a greenhouse gas, this can't, on the whole, be without consequences. Those consequences could conceivably be good if we were independently going through an ice age, which some people say we are, but that somehow our, our pollution of the atmosphere is preventing us from feeling it. Um, you just don't, you don't know. But nevertheless, of course, it is wise, if possible, to stop doing this. Uh, and how do you stop people doing it? Uh, you know, you've got to find a source of clean energy. Uh, and my view is that that is a scientific question much more than a, than a political one. If, if um, the advances were made that made such that clean energy was cheaply available, could be made available around the globe, everybody would go for it. You know, if you say nuclear fusion or something. Uh, we haven't got there, but I can't see any solution other than trying to get there. And that, to me, is the, the wisest use of, of government funds, the research that would, would get us there. Do, do you share this or...? Not really. Um, I think that I think that difficult though it is, we do have to strive to reach international uh, agreement on uh, how to stop <coughs> dangerous climate change as one part of what we ought to be trying to do uh, in this domain. Um, I think the, the the prospects are. are are not that good, but there could be various kinds of game changers. You mentioned China earlier. 
Um, I think China is in the middle of a, of a pretty gigantic and not that long-term wake-up call um, on, on various environmental uh, matters, including uh, the climate, because they're, they're suffering uh, a more grievous um, environmental mm. crisis, partly caused by um, incipient dangerous climate change uh, than most of us uh, are. And China could, uh, in that way, be a game-changer that could be uh, prompted by the uh, vast number of environmental protests there are every year in China uh, to going up a further stage. I think it's entirely possible that there will be some kind of uh, Chinese spring uh, in the next uh, 10 years or so. Um, and if you look at the, the little Turkish spring that seems to be happening in the last few days, it's fascinating to know that that's been prompted by a straight uh, ecological uh, issue, uh, the plan to destroy this, uh, this park. Um, I think that the, the, the crucial thing vis-a-vis dangerous climate change, as with any other question of environmental limits, is the question of precaution. And in that regard, I must say, I, I find Roger's book somewhat wanting. Um, Roger mentioned the uh, climate models and oh, are they exactly right and so on. But of course, as he also mentioned, but doesn't really highlight very much in the book, uh, that's not the most important point. The most important point is to take a fundamentally precautionary attitude not to worry about the exact details of the models or the exact details of the temperature measurements around, around the world. Um, and a fundamentally precautionary attitude is, will call upon us to take uh, drastic and urgent steps, in this case, to reduce um, our output of, uh, of, uh, of um, greenhouse gases. Um, the precautionary principle, by the way, has been uh, quite widely uh, employed, insofar as it's ever been employed by human beings, uh, by the European Union, uh, and again, I, th- I think that's, that's something which Roger is a little weak on in the book. Um, he doesn't take full account of the way in which precautionary reasoning has been put into practice by the European Union, and that's been the, the root of a lot of the good environmental law that we've had in this country um, over the last generation. So my attitude to dangerous climate change is a fundamentally precautionary one, and that's tied to something else where I think that Roger could take a stronger line than he does, which is that we have to get real about giving up this bizarre fetish that we have for economic growth, uh, which is still virtually unquestionable in, uh, in our mainstream media today, uh, and, it's, and it's killing us. And I would like to, to give a little, another little quote, if I may, from, um, from John Gray's uh, Beyond the New Right, where he's a bit more robust than Roger is on this question, I, and I'd like to invite Roger to, to, to achieve the same level of robustness. Here's what John says. The project of promoting maximal economic growth is perhaps the most vulgar ideal ever put before humankind. The myth of open-ended progress is not an ennobling myth, and it should form no part of conservative philosophy. The task of conservative policy is not to spread the malady of infinite aspiration to which our species is in any case all too prone, but to keep in good repair those institutions and practices whereby human beings come to be reconciled with their circumstances. And I would hope that... uh, I find that a broadly sympathetic passage. I could quibble with some bits of it, but I would hope that Roger would go along with that as well. But there isn't any statement in his book, Green Philosophy, uh, along those lines. You take a a more sort of nuanced position on growth, maybe, maybe not, etc. I think that if we're going to stop uh, breaching environmental limits of which dangerous climate change is the most drastic currently. We have to be clear that economic growth has to come to an end. Okay, great. Last go now, reply to that. Yes. uh, I would say there's growth and growth. Um, Of course, we don't want to go on growing in the old model of the Soviet 
five-year plan. You know, constantly more industrialization, turning out more cars, burning up more fossil fuels and so on. Uh, there are, but there, there seems to be some evidence that democracies are unstable if there isn't some element of economic growth. Um, um, we're seeing this all over Europe at the moment. Uh, and um, it, it, because governments are constantly having to make promises in order to win votes. Mm. Uh, and without some growth in the economy, those promises can't be sustained. Uh, uh, my view is that, therefore, we should take seriously the, uh, what the economists say, tell us about, about the need for growth, but transfer that growth from the production of waste to something harmless, like um, you know, what has been happening, the replacement of, uh, of manufacturing by service industries. Or, or you know, when people just sit still and write novels all day, that's economic growth too. Uh, you know, provided some, you know, they can sell the product to, sell, to the, the other person who's writing his novel. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 growth means just circuit more, more stuff circulating in the economy, and that stuff could be simply ideas. And, and that's what I, my, um, when I do, people ask me to describe what I do, I, I say, you know, I live on a farm, uh, and I say, look, I, I turn grass into ideas. My neighbours who turn grass into milk are always making a loss, but I'm managing. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, if everybody in my part of the world was doing what I did, uh, there would be far less pollution, far less nitrogen pollution. That's and no sure. milk. Uh, yeah, well, we'd, there would be a problem there. But, you know, we... <laughs> But I think that this is that limits to growth thesis. I think is is comes out of a 19th century idea of what growth is, uh, the, the the old Marxist idea that we're we're uh, overcoming nature uh, through growing, rather than doing what is in our nature, namely to sit still at a desk, as Pascal says. Bottom line, very briefly, the bottom line is that we need to drastically reduce material throughput if we're to achieve one planet living. Um, yeah. And all the, all the modelling and all the historical evidence suggests that it is not possible to do that uh, while maintaining economic growth. Even if that growth is so-called green right. growth, you cannot drastically reduce material throughput under such circumstances. This makes everything even more depressing than, than it felt yeah. was before. My think tank is trying to work on this problem mm. at the moment. Okay, right. Now we've come to a time where we can interrupt our speakers to let you have... You'll say, <coughs> uh, welcome uh, either questions or short contributions, um, but, but who'd, li who'd like, yeah, please sir. Uh, we have microphones, yeah, so if you just wait for it to arrive. Oh, <coughs> thank you very much. I wanted to ask both the speakers to say a little bit more about what they consider, they've been talking about environmental issues, and ones that are, you know, they've been treating it in fact on a non-party political way. I'd like to hear a bit more from them on how they think environmental ideas impact on philosophical ideas. We've not heard much about ontology or, or uh, epistemology or metaphysics. We've heard a bit about aesthetics. But it strikes me that one of the things that if you like, the, the, the interaction between philosophy and the way in which we conceive environmental issues is that we think of the world as having, we think differently of the sorts of things that there are in the world and how they relate to each other. 
I'll give you an example. We've been talking about inter intergenerational justice, and that's not a new idea. It goes way back, many, many centuries. But what is newer is perhaps uh, interspecific, you know, interspecies, so how you occupy the world. And even, if you think of the fact that human beings live for, you know, 100 years at most, so why, I mean, human, the human presence on Earth is much shorter than the presence of river systems okay. or mountains. Let me, let me pause it there. That, that, that's good. First, a sort of general question about the relationship between uh, environmental issues and philosophy. Perhaps we'll move on mm. to the interspecies thing as well. Well, if I might start on that, um, one thing I think, and I try to practice, is that I do believe that it's not right to only do philosophy in places like this. By places like this, I mean rooms without windows. And in particular, to go further, um, I try to do a certain amount of what is now called outdoor philosophy. I think that the actual content and nature, let alone the style, of philosophy is different if one doesn't always uh, place oneself in an artificial environment when it does it. So I think in that way I'm in sympathy with the spirit of your, of your question. Um, in terms of the... Um, the uh, um, intertemporal justice uh, question, intergenerational justice question, I think you might have um, slightly misunderstood where Roger and I are coming from, because actually we're quite close on, on, on this point. Both of us are somewhat sceptical about the current emphasis on intergenerational justice. Um, the way I would put it is that um, if, you, if what you seek is justice, then you are, you are beginning from a model which is best suited for, um, for people who are contemporaries. And you're always going to miss something crucial about the nature of thinking about the future, which is that future people are utterly dependent upon us. There is no a genuine contract between us and them. The relationship has to be, in a, has to be uh, in a certain sense, fundamentally paternalistic. It has to be one, I would say, of care uh, and, of, and of love. Uh, and future generations emerge from... Uh, us, I mean, literally, uh, uh, but also, also metaphorically. And this is a, connected again back to the, the Berkey and stuff, etc. It's connected also with this, this lovely passage from page 223 of, of Roger's book, which he sort of alluded to earlier. The social contract begins from a thought experiment in which a group of people gather together to decide on their common future. But if they are in a position to decide on their common future, it is because they already have one, because they recognize their mutual togetherness and reciprocal dependence which makes it incumbent upon them to settle how they might be governed under a common, ju common jurisdiction in a common territory. So this is, against, again, against the fantasy of a, of a social contract and is one of the starting points for the idea that we really have to think of ourselves, if you like, as genuinely extended over time uh, and not just, uh, not just over space. And when you do that, it seems to me that the, 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 the metaphor of intergenerational justice starts to look a little bit less satisfactory. Now, just very briefly no, on your uh, question. Let, let, let Roger, Can I just okay. on the species? No, no we'll come, on, come back come to that. We'll come back to that. A, I've got a great point <coughs> on that, too. Good. Okay. Well, actually, I agree with everything the Rupert just you wrote said, especially, <laughs> especially the bit that I wrote. Yeah. So, that's all all right. <coughs> So maybe can I you do the species. No, I think you, you can exist. I, I, I would like to add something. Yeah, we'll add something about the, the relevance of the uh, of environmental questions to philosophy and vice versa. Uh, I, I think that actually 
people have been thinking in the wrong way about environmental problems because they have lacked uh, a certain kind of philosophical approach to them. Uh, and they haven't seen them as I would try to make them see them, as, uh, as problems of practical reasoning that confront us uh, as rational beings and that, they, uh, and that the world of a rational being is a completely different world from the world of other animals uh, and uh, it's a duty of philosophy to tell us why. So I, th- I think that um, actually philosophy is extremely Yes, relevant. that does take us to the end. Um, um, I think that Roger has a, has a blind spot here because for me, the, some of the same kinds of... Um, um, ideas of care uh, uh, and love uh, and uh, trusteeship uh, and the, the extension of ourselves over time as well as, well as over space. And sympathies um, to others. That yeah, should, should apply about. to, uh, and you probably agree with this, Simon, should apply um, strongly and do apply strongly to, uh, to many non-human animals uh, as well. But unfortunately, Roger doesn't make this, this move. And I'd just like to give the... The, this quote from the very end of the book, uh, page 412. Um, um, the joys of life, uh, he's talking about the joys of life. He says, especially the joy that comes from membership of a privileged species able to eat any other that stands in its way. Um, which is a kind of. So animals basically exist uh, in, in Roger's uh, um, frame to, to, to be, to go back to the Genesis terms, dominated as we see fit. And I think this is, this is um, a, a lack and a, and a failing. One particular reason why I think that is that I think that it's not true to say that, uh, that, that human beings can be radically distinguished from all human, non-human animals on this front. So, for example, I think it's very important that we recognize the, the very close commonalities in various respects of cetaceans and primates and dogs and so on and so forth uh, to ourselves. And I think that, that, in, in, that they help us to see that it's not a case of there's humans and then there's all the things they can eat. But there's actually, <laughs> there's actually, this, uh, this, there's actually a kind of a, a spectrum. Uh, and that we find ourselves uh, naturally uh, on that spectrum. And just as we are hopefully, because we must, getting better at uh, extending our care uh, further into the future, so we should do the same thing vis-a-vis uh, non-human animals. Can I add, add another quotation then from my book on that topic? Um, Don't forget, you're going to be able to buy it afterwards. And yes, and Roger will sign. I, I quote the, the the sonnet that that Wordsworth wrote in on the blank leaf of Isaac Walton's Complete Angler, which was a, a book written at the time when the environmental movement began in our country in the 17th century, in defence of fishing. Uh, what a celebration of fishing! It wasn't under attack then, um, and. Uh, I, on co- in commenting on this, because, of course, people will attack all those sort of uh, relations to animals, I say the following. Stewardship is second nature to the sportsman. In Britain, habitats and biodiversity have been protected not only by the Anglers Conservation Association, but also by the Game Conservancy Association, by the British Field Sports Society, and by the Masters of Foxhounds Association during times when they have only been damaged by the state. Hunting, shooting and fishing create an interest in other species and a desire to conserve their habitats that is matched by virtually no other relation between man and animal, a point that needs no explaining to those who take part in these pursuits and which can seldom be explained to anyone else. You know, that's my view about it. Uh, that in fact, um, it, properly, properly understood, we carnivores are actually on the side of the animals. 
Okay, uh, all lots of hands going up. We've we, we spent so long over that one. Uh, lady there. Yeah. Wait for the mic. Follow on from this um, idea of interspecies, the relationship, and also relating that to the intergenerational um, relationship. Really, it's to Roger Scruton because I think actually probably the most important, in some ways, relationship that we have with um, animals is not uh, to shoot or hunt or whatever, but also um, their, the, the fact their, sim- their symbolic power. You know, their heraldic beasts, mm. the lion. All these things, they, we want to preserve for, for the future generations, surely an idea of the lion, you know, and the unicorn, which is, you know, that's mm. England, isn't it, or whatever. So mm. what do you think about that? I'm a great advocate of the unicorn conservation movement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that seems to me to be, epitomize the whole issue. Um, uh, 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 but I, total, I totally agree with you that, that biodiversity is absolutely fundamental and the existence of these beautiful things all around us who are, which are superior to us in many ways but nevertheless aren't able to, as it were, to enter the debate except insofar as we uh, enter on their behalf. I think the existence of that is absolutely fundamental and I, I, I would want to say that, that protecting their habitats is one of our duties. But protecting habitats is not easy in, in, in uh, a world like ours, in which farming, I- intensive farming is, has become the norm. And that's why I do make that little, slightly tongue-in-cheek um, defense of hunting, shooting, and fishing, because they do protect habitats. Um, and they're probably the last activities that have that as their fundamental goal. Okay, one there, and then we'll come down here. Uh, thanks very much, um, and very much enjoyed the, 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 the discussion. Um, I want to put a different perspective on time, if I can, because we talk about Burke's social contract over time. Um, dare I stray into solution, because the challenge I see is the time to actually get on and solve these challenges. And, and I suppose that the question I have for Roger is, under your solution where you start local with oikophilia and then extend out whether we have the time for that and whether actually Rupert, under your philosophy, um, were actually better in terms of approaching a solution by turning the power of globalisation, turning the power of technology and global brands and accepting that and using our firepower there to generate the global oikophilia far faster. Thank you. Roger first. Oh, that's a very good question. I, I, I'd, of course, I, I worry that we haven't got the time, that time is running out, um, and that uh, we're, bec- we've, we're becoming conscious of these problems only at the moment when the, the solution is, as it were, escaping from our hands. Uh, and I, I, I think that I agree with the second part of what you said, or what you were implying, that in the end technology has to be brought to our aid because there's nothing else that can get us quickly to the goal. Yeah, I I guess, uh, of course, there's a vital role for technology, but um, uh, I I am, perhaps surprisingly, a a bit less optimistic than than Roger that uh, that technology can be, uh, if if that's what you're both saying, the main element of our our saviour. I think that uh, mostly what is required... 
uh, is social and political action and a change of consciousness. Now, do bear in mind that what I stressed in my remarks is that uh, I'm, in, I'm in strongly in favour of taking this principle of subsidiarity, it's an ugly word, but it's a good idea, fundamentally seriously. So my point is that we need to uh, preserve and re-enhance uh, 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 the local and reground people in the local. But we also need to operate wherever it's necessary to operate uh, at the transnational and indeed uh, the global level. And a number of the things that we need to do now in terms of, uh, in terms of recreating um, protection uh, for future people, uh, for biodiversity, uh, etc., has to be done uh, at the international, etc., level because of the extent to which, like it or not, we've globalised our world. So I'm in favour both of taking um, action at the international, global, etc., level and in favour of, to some significant extent, putting globalisation into reverse so that we can have the local oikophilia and, the, and, and it can actually work in the way that we're just talking about. Okay, down here, this one first. Um, just wait for... Oh, yes. Uh, uh, thanks. Um, uh, Ro Roger talked about um, ecological awareness sort of, sort of going back to 17th century. But of course it... Uh, one, one could probably trace it much further back to some to Heraclitus, Pantarei, everything is flux, but, but with a logos. Um, Shakespeare, of course, in Romeo and Juliet, there's Fra Lawrence's uh, which is something like, uh, not so vile that on the earth doth live, but to the earth some special good doth give. Uh, no aught so good, anything so good when strained from that fair use. So we get that sort of ecological uh, uh, thinking uh, earlier, sort of pre-17th. Pre and uh, Shakespeare, of course, uh, uh, is German, said uh, Schiller, uh, Goethe, Hegel, Marx. Not German literally, but German in his thinking and philosophy. But, and I still feel that we, we haven't really answered the relation between ecological thinking and philosophy itself. Uh, what about the problem that in Enlightenment thought, British empiricism, Cartesian rationalism, is very static in its thinking, trapped in dualisms? Um, and perhaps we need to move... You, you, you know, if, if we're living in a dynamic world and time is urgent, this very vital idea of time, perhaps we need to... We need a philosophy that thinks more dynamically, and of course I'm, I'm um, pointing to Hegel, uh, Marx. We haven't mentioned the Frankfurt School or Adorno and the problems of ins instrumental uh, reason, instrumental rationality. So are there any ideas, any, any views on you know, the limits of enlightenment mm -hmm. thought for understanding, for, for understanding the ecological crisis for raising consciousness yeah. and for dealing with the whole problem of closed minds and closure. Yeah, I, I, think, that, uh, I think that that's absolutely right. <coughs> I think that both Roger and I are, in that sense, um, uh, critical friends of the Enlightenment uh, and that a lot of mainstream uh, uh, 
Western philosophy of the last few hundred years has been on balance uh, environmentally destructive. In terms of who are the, the thinkers, the philosophers and others who can counter this, my type list, which would overlap, I think, with, with uh, Rogers but not be identical to it, uh, would, uh, would start uh, with, uh, with Burke uh, and then move forward to... Um, uh, in the 20th century to Heidegger uh, and Merleau-Ponty uh, and, and Wittgenstein, who of course was a great critic of, uh, of, uh, of progress. Uh, and in uh, political philosophy, uh, I'd mention the, the recent names of, uh, of Alastair MacIntyre, uh, um, the Polanyi brothers, uh, uh, to some extent, uh, Oakeshott. In terms of someone who's alive today, uh, and you can come and see him at UBA, in fact, on, on Wednesday, if, you, if anyone wants to take a trip up to Norwich with me. Um, Ian McGilchrist is, I think, a really important uh, thinker with his book, The Master and Its Emissary. Uh, and his, for example, his um, beautiful uh, account of how uh, Romanticism stands in this way, uh, opposed to the main thrust of the Enlightenment and, indeed, of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, uh, I'm broadly of the same opinion. Uh, I think... Uh, in my book, I, I single out Hegel for special mention, um, and I give a role to Heidegger, um, pompous old bugger that he was. Um, but I, I think the the real, and I totally agree with you with your reference to Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare was writing in the middle of that the Greenwood movement, which did animate uh, our national culture very widely at that time, uh, and is indeed you find it in all the Elizabethan uh, court music as well. Uh, and and I, so I, I would say that yes, there is there is a philosophical approach to these things already contained in, in Shakespeare, uh, and. Um, Gosh, I mean, you've mentioned just about everybody. <laughs> I, I, I would, I, I'm fairly sceptical about uh, uh, Adorno and the Frankfurt School. Uh, uh, I'm not, I think there's a lot of uh, self-referential reasoning there. And I, I actually think that Marx and Marxism did tremendous environmental damage because of the, and for the reasons that John Gray says, placing the idea of, of, of progress in the, set, at the center of our thinking about everything, um, material progress and the, and the domination over nature and so on. But still, that's another matter. Okay, where were we? Oh, there, up, up here, and then here, and then here. I think we're all right. Yep, up. Thanks very much. Um, <clears throat> I was interested and surprised to see <clears throat> so much agreement between the two speakers, um, which is a good thing. I just want to float a point rather than put one. It's to do with the time scale, as another question has asked. I mean, on the best estimates, I think that modern humans have been around on the Earth for something like 140,000 years, of which recorded civilization is only a tiny, tiny part. And barring the millennium or the second coming or whatever it might be, we're probably going to be around for a lot longer than many of us think. I mean, maybe we're just halfway through our time. Who knows? So raise the question about the, um, how optimistic green philosophers can be about the long-term impact our changes of lifestyle and thinking can have, given the long-term. I mean, it may be that long-term doesn't matter. It may be that we should only be thinking about the next 500 years or 300 years. But maybe not. I mean, I know, I know people who 
and this is the point I'm floating really, who said that what's wrong with green philosophy is that it is pessimistic and unadventurous about human creativity and human potential for solving problems. Mm. So it could be that in 500 years' time, people will be worrying about the problems of 500 years after that, and that their thinking will be completely different to our thinking now about the problems 1,000 years away from us now. So I'm just wondering really about the scale of, uh, about the time scale of our concern and about how much any of our thinking on this can make accurate predictions or have uh, predictable effects. Thank you. In my view, it's not about making sure. predictions. Yeah, it's about it's about having a fundamentally precautionary approach, and that, that's what guardianship necessarily involves. So, for example, in relation to the nuclear issue, we have to think way beyond 500 years because we're producing toxic compounds that will last uh, hundreds of thousands uh, of years. Uh, in relation to the first uh, part of your of your of your very interesting comment, let me just inject a, a quick uh, further note of disagreement, which we haven't really come to yet. If you're worried we're agreeing too much. Um, where I would draw from the left a lot more than, than uh, Roger does, although he makes some nods to this, is, is by being a strong advocate of, uh, of egalitarianism. And I believe that we need to move much more in the direction of being uh, egalitarian um, in a distribution of goods within society. I think that a lot of the trust and community that Roger wants is not... Uh, compatible with the level of inequality that we have, and that, as far as I can tell, he's more or less happy to to preserve. And to put it in to put it in a kind of slogan, uh, I like Roger's conservatism a lot more than the neoliberalism of the Conservative Party today. I hope that's obvious. But I'm worried that Roger's conservatism is still the conservatism of the one percent. Whereas what we need is to have a conservatism uh, that is inherited into green thinking, etc., which would be of the 99 percent. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's not given to us to think seriously about things 500 years ahead. Uh, some of us can, uh, and it's a wonderful game, and you, get, you can get professorships and academic salaries for doing it. Um, but uh, on the whole, we are at our best and most certain in our reasoning when we're thinking about tomorrow, uh, and we can think about what world our children will inherit Maybe you could just think as far as our grandchildren. But it's much better to recognize that uh, what we, well, that we do know about the past. We don't know about the future, but we do know about the past. We can find out all about it and devote, devote our, um, our passions, our political passions, to conserving what it has bequeathed to us. And that's a much more rational thing to do. Right, we're running out of time. We can keep it very short, please. I'm sorry, I've run There it is. Yeah. The, the, the debate tonight struck me as very unbalanced. <laughs> what's, what's, what's lacking very much is any kind of psychology of what it means to live good ecology. And in particular, professional philosophers are, are seriously negligent in not talking about what it means to live a, a life of good ecology. To, to, to professional philosophers have got a lot to say about weak will, but they hardly ever talk about moral strength. And that, that is what is really needed to live a life of good ecology. As, for example, you go around the supermarket and you have a temptation to avoid buying organic food because you're suffering from weak will. But philosophers, professional philosophers... I've got hardly anything at all to say about that. Okay, thank you, Roger. That's your question. 
Uh, well, I'm, I'm a very untypical professional philosopher because, first up, it's been 20 years since I've had a proper job as a philosopher. Um, and, I, I, okay, you know, like uh, that character in Oscar Wilde, I can resist anything except temptation. Uh, and uh, like everybody else, yeah, I go around the supermarket and uh, I, I, I feel the weakness of will. The, the, the primary weakness of will is being there at all in the first place. Uh, <laughs> and I take the view that one should live in another way, and I do say this in the, in the book. One, one should not shop in the supermarkets. One should, one should refuse to have one's food wrapped. Uh, one should, where possible, buy local products which, which have some sufficient possibility of poisoning you that you'll take yourself away from the world soon. You know, there are lots of things that a, a real ecologist would live by, and I, and I try. Uh, so, but uh, I agree with you that, that uh, professional philosophy doesn't tell us very much about this. That's because professional philosophy is professional. Okay, last question is down here. You have to be very quick. I'm sorry, I know you've been waiting a long time. You have to be very quick. I have enjoyed many things about the discussion, but I need to point out that the entire discussion between the two participants and the chair has taken place within an ambit, or, or has taken place um, based on a shared assumption that nobody's even mentioned or pointed out or questioned, and that is, in a word, it's, it's been entirely anthropocentric. The, the working assumption has been that, human, that v the va value resides solely in human beings um, as opposed to finding it uh, in the natural world, including ourselves as natural beings. Okay, that's... Which I, which just take, just, just one second, yeah. which I would identify as ecocentrism. So right. um, I'm, I'm afraid that R Roger's... This relates to the central contradiction in Roger's position. So you, have, you have to allow... You've got the question... I know, but like one more sentence. Namely, that if he hopes that practical reasoning is going to save us, and corporate capitalism, which is the most corrosive single dynamic on the communities he wants to save, ecological and human, it is the realization of anthropocentrism. So if he doesn't question that, it's hopeless. Well, look, I agree with you about, uh, about the crucialness of corporate capitalism and market fundamentalism. I made that criticism explicit. Roger, Roger's position is explicitly an anthropocentric uh, position. However, I, you must have not been listening when I was speaking when I explicitly uh, talked about uh, non-human animals and said that we had to move away from an anthropocentric position. It's moral extensionism. It's just extensionism. It doesn't start oh. from the position All right, look. Excuse me. I've addressed your point. You said the, 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 the discussion is fundamentally anthropocentric. I pointed out that, it, that my discussion wasn't. I agree with you also that we should uh, actually have a fundamentally ecocentric um, uh, way of thinking about these things. I also think, which I don't know whether you'd agree with or not, and this probably take, we can't settle now, that, that anthropocentrism, when you think it through properly, collapses into ecocentrism anyway. So then the dispute becomes a lot more subtle. Very good. I agree with that last remark, mm. that when you think things through, uh, there isn't a real distinction between the anthropocentric and the ecocentric approach, because both of them are addressed to human beings. And it's finding reasons that motivate them. We, I, I've, I've argued with my horse week after week over his pollution of the, of the field, and he did, never responds. But I can make him behave nevertheless because I can respond to arguments.
Now, at the, be now, uh, at the beginning, I, I said that one of the things that runs through Roger's book, which is available to sign, uh, that to buy in, in the foyer, and Roger will sign after the event. Um, one of the things that runs through the book is, is the idea of the possibility of an alliance across political differences in our culture. And I was going to bring that up as a theme for them to discuss, but I actually thought in the end it was working out to, to watch rather than to talk about. And so uh, having watched it, I think we should now thank Roger and Rupert. Thank you very much.